Welcome to the Love Reaching Community's Sermon of the Week. For more information pertaining to the life of the church, please visit our website at lrcchurch.co.za. Good morning. That was a nice morning, Clem. You guys good? Let me first take a good look at you. Some good-looking people, some more good-looking people, the best-looking look, of them all right in front. <laughs> uh, I don't think we sometimes appreciate the effort that goes into getting this thing set up for a Sunday. We're not the biggest church. I don't think we are, our aim is to be a mega church. But uh, I just have to echo what Heath said. For them to vacuum and clean and get the chairs put out. To scurry around and get gas because winter's back. It just, it's unbelievable. And they scurry everywhere and comfort drives and he gets the gas for us and he does a lot for us. So for, from us here to the ground stuff, you guys rock. Really they do. Ah, thank you, Father. What book are we in at the moment? Who wrote it? Okay, who wrote it this time? Paul, there we go. When was it written? <laughs> Trevlin answers every Sunday. <laughs> Round about 48 uh, after Christ. So it was written freshly after the, the, the church started. Who was it written to? The church in the area of Galatia. You got that? Some more questions? Who started the church? <laughs> Terry, that's a cop out. Terry says Jesus started the church. <laughs> oh, you see what I have to deal with, guys. Stand up comedy at its best. This morning I'm in a portion Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, to I'm going to stop at 24. We've gone through, if you followed us, through the headings in the Bible. If you go through Galatians, not necessarily chapter every week, but portion every week. So Duan did a great job last week. Just a shout out to Duan also. And this week I'm now taking Galatians 3.15 to 24. It ends at verse 27 and then it starts with sons and heirs. But from verse 25 in that portion, it starts to talk about the sons and the heirs. So I'm going to stop just before that so that the next person that comes to the next portion has got a nice little portion to deal with. And I don't steal the thunder because if you're a pastor and a preacher, you know, you always want to preach on sons and heirs. <laughs> There's just something in the heart of God. So I'm going to stop there. The portion I'm preaching on this morning and that I get to share with you guys is, if you read your heading in your ESV, the law and the promise. It's not something that we're comfortable with today. We want to leave the law one side. We want to leave that, that, that thing that tells us what to do and how to live there. And we just want to live in the promise. But we're going to talk about the law and the promise. And I pray that I will do it justice. But when we look at this book, the last time I preached, I said to you guys, a quote from Baxter, the theologian, says, We may well say, especially to young converts, read Romans to be grounded in Christian doctrine. Read Corinthians to be guarded in Christian practice. And read Galatians to be guarded against deceptive error. And again, this is what Paul does. 
He comes and he says, the law and the promise, I'll, I'm going to talk to you so that you can be guarded against deceptive practices. So hopefully I can join Paul in echoing what he's trying to say. Hopefully I can bring some revelation. So Father, I ask you now to make me succinct and clear. Holy Spirit, anoint me that I can speak your thoughts, your words to your children, Father. I pray that you will have an impact this morning. That it won't just be a good, delivered, well thought through message, but it will give life, Lord. And, and that, Father, we are so dependent on your Holy Spirit. There's no other way. Come and hover over your children, Holy Spirit. Let them hear what you want them to hear. And help me to say only what you want me to say. Amen. So I said the last time when I preached, when you read the book of Galatians, you have to say, God, help me to also see the character of the person that wrote this. And I said to you, uh, if you look at Paul in that particular portion that I was doing, you see certain things. This morning again as we read this, we, we are confronted with the humility of this man, Paul. You know, to write a book where he used to be the proponent of the law. The advocate of the law. And he comes and he balances it against the promise and about Jesus Christ. He, he, he comes with humility when he writes this letter. He says, yeah, yeah, I used to be that, but I'm this now and I'm convinced about this. He also comes and he, you, you see in this portion his fierce love for the church of Christ. You know, it's not always comfortable when somebody loves you enough to correct you. <laughs> It's, it's not comfortable. And one of your brothers come and say, hey, when you do that, it's not really so cool, you know? But when it's done with such love, like, like he expresses for the church, he's like, I can't, I can't say I love you and I don't, I don't correction, I don't bring correction. You see this, this man being so protective over this church, like a, a daddy, like a mother hen over her children. And when you read it, may you find that over you as you read Galatians. I don't do this often, but... Yeah, let, let me say this. You get a man here. You get Paul that he comes and he's, he stands on the conviction of Christ. He didn't just say, oh, now somebody has made a compelling argument. Now I need to... I need to fall in line with that. He stands on the conviction of the revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to him. And he says, I'm convicted now. I used to fight for the law. Now I will fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ for all men and the way that it should be. He, he doesn't just go, oh, that's a good idea. And oh, this is somebody's opinion. I'm going to go with this. And I want to tell you guys that this morning I honor all the elders on this team. Well, it's now privileged enough to be part of this team and to lead it. But you, you guys stand for the conviction of Christ. And I want you as a church to know that we, we don't just make decisions here. We pray through things. And these couples sitting here, well, one, two, three, four, a couple sitting here and an almost couple there. They're, they are men and women of character who don't just go with the sway of common thought and opinion. And sometimes our meetings are quite robust because our gifting is so diverse. And for you as a church, it's a good sign. So this morning, I honor the team that we get to be part of. Thank you, guys. You hold us to account and you steward this, this people from a point of conviction. 
and not just a good opinion. Really appreciate you guys. Just like Paul. But he comes, and this is the man that, that writes. And another, another portion of context here, when we look at this portion, it's just been the council of Jerusalem. What happened at that? Acts 15. Why is this important? Because it dictated for the early church what are supposed to be held on to and what are supposed to be let go in terms of expectations, demands, observances. Paul, the fighter for the law, the enforcer of the law, has gone and spoken to the people and said, there's something amiss here. We cannot turn this church into just another Jewish religion. And the churches, the leaders have just met of the early church and they've come out with four things. They said, no sexual impurity, no idolatry, no eating blood of animals, I think, and humans, and no eating of meat where the animal has been strangled. When you read this, may that be part of your context. When you read this, also remember that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Jesus was a Jew. So the early church, it was easy for them to think, well, he was a Jew, so we should just carry on observing Jewish traditions. He, he went to the temple, he went for sacrifice, he did all of that. And this is where the clash comes in, where they say, no, you have to do, no, we won't. The other thing that happens at that council is not just what observances we should adhere to, but also what we should say no to from other cultures and religions. Because now the gospel has been spreading and all of a sudden these people used to sacrifice animals and sprinkle it on the food and then take the food as holy and now they're trying to bring that into the church. Context of the scripture. You think about when you go from our expression of God's church here, Limbro, to another church. Let's say you go for a wedding into another church or maybe a funeral and you sit there and you think, hmm, they're not doing it right. They, they, they're not doing it our way. Yet it's an expression. I've studied church history, and there were some denominations and church organizational structures that split because they couldn't decide whether it is right to say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit and push you under once, or whether it should be, I baptize you in the name of the Father and up, the Son, and up, and the Holy Spirit, and up. And it split. A new expression started. A new denomination started. You see, this Paul says, we cannot be subject to the interpretation of style and stuff to the point where we divide the bride of Christ. He was the one who used to say, you you're the ugly wife because you're Gentiles. But you, Jewish one, you're the pretty wife. To coming to say, you are the bride. Jesus Christ said, and we believe. He becomes a, a, a vehement defender of the gospel of Christ. Not the shape of the church. And this is what happens when this denominational structure started. They started defending the, the structure at the expense of the gospel of Christ. 
May we never be a people that hold fast to a style to the point of losing Christ at the center of it all. The law and the promise. The other thing you read when you read this, this is not somebody who once heard about the law and is now giving you, oh, my take on the law is this. Have you had those discussions with people that think they know something about politics or economics? I mean, some of us have studied for three years to know economics, and some of us have studied seven years to get masters and doctorates and whatever. But somebody will take you on toe-to-toe like they are experts. You're like, where did you study? No, I just read this article online. You're like, what? We had this incident where I'm, I'm standing with somebody who's learning to play piano, and I'm trying to explain something to them, but they say to me, no, 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 no. I know this, I know this. Eventually, I was like, oh, please. Are you going to explain it to me? Moment of arrogance, but look, you, you get what I'm saying? You, this is not Paul. He's not, he doesn't just read on maybe the stone tablets of the day that was passed around for common circulation what the law is about. He has studied it half, maybe three quarters of his life has been devoted to understanding the law. He is an expert. When you read his take on the law, it is the, the expert opinion of somebody who studied it. What I'm saying is don't dismiss it when he speaks about it. Pay attention. My first point is the law. The law gets introduced at Mount Sinai. When Moses went up, and God said, here are the stone tablets. You know what happens? He goes down. He finds them. They've taken all their gold and their jewelry and stuff. They've made a calf. And they're now dancing like mad people around this calf. He drops the stones. They break. Melts the, the golden calf. Lets them drink it. And God kills a percentage of the population. He goes back up and God says, now let's do this again. The law comes in the form of the Ten Commandments. Later, we have extra laws introduced. Leviticus, it actually means law. Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law. And you start to read that, and that's when, I don't know about you guys, but you kind of, your eyes just glaze over. Because, you, yes, you don't know, what am I supposed to cook with what? And, and all the, sorry, the great curry cooks among us say, add cumin. Add cumin. But you can't. And you read this, and, and they started exploring this, this thing. And you know what? Some of those laws might have just been good hygiene practices. I don't know if, if we ate pork back then, whether it would have been safe. I've had the privilege of working in an, an engineering firm that does control systems for food and beef. So I've been to Renown and to Escort and those places where they process meat. The process that it goes through to make it, you know, for consumption is, is quite a process. I, I don't know, it would have been safe for you to eat it. I think the creator of it all that said it is unclean probably knew that in that state it was unclean to consume certain foods. The other reason the law came in is for social Order and justice. 
The other reason the law came in is to protect the vulnerable against the actual fallen nature and depravity of humanity. Because all of us would like to believe that we are good. You stand like I do before God with my thoughts and my heart and my mouth. And then you know, you are not as perfect as you would like others to believe. And you know if you give yourself half a chance that you would pray on the vulnerable. In whatever way. Take advantage of them financially, whatever. It is within us, if we don't submit ourselves to Jesus Christ and His way to consume other people. It's, it's what happened. Our own nature takes over. Our selfishness is evident. I just look at myself when I feel sorry for myself and how much I can eat is beyond me. It says, he says in Galatians 3 verse 19, Why then the law? This is the expert saying, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Simple point. The law is for sin. If you do not drive faster than the speed limit, they cannot enforce the law. Now it starts out as Ten Commandments. It is fleshed out into practical laws, in societal laws, in structural laws that's supposed to happen. And, and then Micah comes at 750 to 700. And he says, now what does the Lord require of you, O man? And what does he say? But to do justice, social law, to love kindness, nature of who we are, and to walk humbly. With your God. And he comes and he condenses all of that that is scribed in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And he says, let me just give you a take that if you hold these three things, you will be in good standing with the law. I like this quote. Martin Luther King Jr. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me. But it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. <laughs> Social justice. I wrote things that I feel the law brings. And I don't know if it's even worth taking down, but I felt that the law brings teachability. It's that thing that you say, well, I can learn to do things better. It's that thing where your heart says, I, I'm willing to learn. I didn't know this. I didn't know driving 140 on the highway is, is an infringement. I didn't know this. I had to explain that to Terry the other day. He didn't know it either. But we are teachable. Okay, God. It brings, it teaches and it, it, it enforces humility. Where you can say, I was wrong. You know how many marriages will change? When it's just this, yo, I was wrong. You know how many parenting styles will change if there was just this, I was wrong. You know how our government will change if there's just this attitude of, yo, I was wrong. In humility, can I repent? Some of our big retail owners, if they can just say, yo, I was wrong. 
Let me drop the prices a little bit. Humility. It's what the law brings. The other thing that it teaches is a submitted heart. There's safety. Social order and justice. And the last one that the law teaches is obedience. When Jesus says, the Bible says, I prefer obedience over sacrifice. The other thing that the law does, if you look at verse 24, it says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Guardian means tutor and trainer. Now just quickly to vindicate my point of humility, teachability, submitted heart and obedience. Any trainers in the house? You ever had to train a class of people where those <laughs> character issues are not sorted? You cannot teach anybody anything. But this is what the Lord does. It comes and He trains us in the way that we should walk. We don't want to be trained, do we? Because at the very debauched part of our lives, that ugly part that we hide from everyone, we are so prideful and arrogant and so easily tripped up. I wrote you that the extreme absence of law will bring anarchy and chaos. And there's this thing in, in the circles at the moment that is this thing of extreme grace which just kicks out any sign of law or sanctification or holiness. And I want to tell you, it robs society of holiness and the value of life. It might sound this morning that I'm advocating for law. But I'm not. <laughs> I'm saying in God there's balance. You know verse 22 says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So extreme legalism that is based on the scripture is just imprisoning us again. And you know what that will result in? Is revolt and rebellion. And it will strip away the hope out of society and humanity because of the self-righteousness that we will live with in attaining our own salvation outside of Christ. The law. Introduced at Sinai. Fleshed out. Why it was there? It was the trainer of the nation, of all people, for possibly greater good. The promise, second point. Now this is the point we all want. Yo, I'm walking in the promises of the Lord. I will proclaim it. I will declare it. This is the promise of the Lord. We all want it. But what if the promise of the Lord is not something nice? Well, then that's not the promise of the Lord. That's law. You can't put me under law. I'm in the promise. I'm trying my best to do an American accent, but it's not working. I'm sorry. <laughs> Forgive me. I'm going to quote somebody now that 
I know a particular bit about because uh, part of my family is in the Seventh-day Adventist. But Ellen G. White is probably the greatest writer in Seventh-day Adventist, the, the church group, um, who has interpreted the Bible. And she writes the doctrine and the, the theology and the observances and stuff. Lots of that was written by, by Ellen G. White. Now listen to this quote. Now we would consider Seventh-day Adventists on the legalism spectrum, if you look at it. Because there are a lot of observances that they still take from the Jewish law. So she says, God's promises are all on condition of humble obedience. God's promises are all on condition of humble obedience. Now you just have to switch on to one of the religious channels nowadays to find that humble obediences do not always fall in the category of prosperity, walking in the promise, walking in the kingdom of God and seek all the kingdom things, Sometimes forget about the king and pursuing the king of the kingdom. But the promise, that is, that is what we pursue. Fullness of the promise. I want to say, my take on it, is maybe we should get back to a place where we obey the promise. I find this in, in, in verse 15. This is a, a chunky piece that I'll read to you. You can just listen. To give a human example, brothers, Paul is saying to the church, to give you a human example, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to the offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. And then he carries on to say if the inheritance comes by the law, then it's not coming by the promise. Now, it sounds like our humble advocate here is saying, I'm rejecting the law. But he is saying that there is a promise that was fulfilled in and through the law. Abraham made a covenant with God. Oh, God made a covenant with Abraham. Let me get my, my order right. Do you understand what a covenant is? Do you understand what the promise was to Abraham that you are walking in today when you call yourself a Christian? I don't think some of the channels understand the promise and the covenant that was made with Abraham that we are walking in today because then they cannot say, just go for grace and stuff anything else. Walk in the promise of God, just declare it and so shall it be. It is a one-sided, watered-down interpretation of the Bible. You know that in a covenant, I researched the steps in a covenant. Let me read it to you so I don't plagiarize or don't stuff it up. But it is, it is fascinating. So it says in the covenant there are steps. The one is the pre-ceremony actions. This is where God went to Abram and said, let us sit together. Abram, I'm telling you, I'm going to make a nation of you. I'm going to do this and this and this. And Abram said, okay. And then God said, leave your people, follow me, and I will take you into the promised land. Then there was the selection of the covenant representatives and the cutting of the covenant sacrifice. 
Abram represented humanity. God represented himself. And they slaughtered animals. They cut them in half from head to the tip of their tail and put the two sides on each side and let the blood pool in the center. The exchange of robes and belts and weapons. When I put my clothes on you, you become part of me, I become part of you. Your weapon is now my weapon, so I'll protect you and you protect me. Next one, they did, they called what they, they did what they called the walk of death. They now walked through the pool of blood with the parts of the sacrifice on each side. They would walk through with a torch. It was commonly known as a, a symbol of unity in, in, in a covenant. You read Genesis 15, there was a pot of fire that went through and passed through the, the center of when the covenant was made. The pronouncement of blessing and curses. So now they would say, okay, if I do this, this is what will happen. If I don't do this, this is the curse that will come upon me. Then they would do a seal of covenant. So each one of them would cut themselves and put something in so that there's a permanent scar so that they can constantly remember, oh, this sign here, this is my covenant that I've made with you. They would exchange names and they would have a covenantal meal. Celebration to say we are now one. Now I just want to ask you, sounds like a lot of prescribed things to do. If there was no law or governing in promise. For Abram to walk in the province and the, the covenant of God, there were certain things he had to do. Had Abram said, I'm not under the law. The law will come 430 years later. I shall not walk in it. There would not have been a promise. But now we are so clever today. When God says to us, please will you walk in holiness and be holy like I am holy? We say to him, no. Because there is no more law. And if God says, please will you honor the sanctity of marriage? And we say, if I feel like it. But if it becomes inconvenient, or I see something that's maybe a bit more attractive than what I'm stuck with, I won't. Because I'm not under law. And in the same sentence you will say, but I'm walking out the promises of God for my life. And we think, and we are so clever, we invented this thing. We are by far the authorities when it comes to the interpretation of the Bible. Will you honor me with your first fruits? I see what's left over God. Will you raise your children that they will not depart from the way that I have, have asked them to go? Eesh, it's hard work. And you know what? I'm not under law, so I'll just be my friend, a friend to my children. I want to parent them. I'll just be their best friend. You know, it's so funny. We can wear the same shoes. Because I'm not under law. I'm walking in the promise. What would have happened if Abram for one second said, God, I will not walk in this promise, the steps that are required for me to do, to walk it out in fullness? You cannot separate that there are things that God requires you to do that might feel like it is imposed on you. But ultimately at the center of it is God's unconditional love and design for your life. And it will bring the fulfillment of the promise of Christ in your life. 
You know how many people are missing the promise and the purpose of God for their lives? Because they will not submit to what He is convicting them to do. Young people, Proverbs is not not relevant to you. When He says to you, do not put burning coals in your lap, young man. It is a good suggestion. Don't do it. But instead you will go and pile on the coals and say, I'm not under law. And before you know it, you have ruined the fullness of the promise of God for your life. Because you have chosen to obey your lusts, your desires, your selfish nature at the expense of obeying the promise of God. You know, when you go and research Abraham and the promise and the covenant, he had to do seven things to get seven things. But nowadays, it's okay for us to say, I don't have to pursue holiness because there's grace. And there is grace. But that silly statement that is bantered around like that makes the grace so cheap that you don't want to touch that grace. You want to wash your hands when somebody has said that and say, oh, I need to get it off me. Because the grace that has covered your life, your sins, your past, your future came at a huge cost. The creator of the world made himself nothing to come and redeem you. But we're not under law. There's no room for legalism in our lives. There's only room for the promise. I would caution you to be careful when you say that in front of a living God because He might just hold you to live in the promise that He has for your life. <laughs> he might just call you out on that one. That's why we're so full of complacency nowadays. It's just okay to sit and say, yes, now I know one day it will come to fulfillment. One day. Because we've become a lazy people. And Jesus comes. I need to read this for you. It says in Matthew twenty two, thirty six to forty. Somebody comes to Jesus and say, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Guys, I have done the worst things there are to do. I cannot judge a single soul. And in this eldership team, we do not judge people. We love them like Christ has loved them. But we also hold fast that there is holiness and sanctification under Christ. And we will walk with whoever wants to walk with us to explore the purposes and the promise of God for their lives. And you know what? Sometimes that comes with a level of conviction that says that God says to you, do this, do this, do this, and test me and see. And we will hold you to account on that as much as you can hold us to account on that. We cannot sit 
and waste time because we are lazy and complacent and cover it under this little slogan that's bantered around, we are under grace. We have a task to do. Collectively, individually, we have a task at hand. Best we get on with it. Because that is the promise of God. Now, I have this picture in mind. Sorry, that wraps up my message. Does anybody know what this is? Do you pronounce it chamois? I wasn't sure. I thought maybe that's just an Afrikaans thing. A chamois cloth. Do you wash cars with? Huh? And, and when it's dry, it just comes apart. We washed the car the other day. We left it outside. When I took it out of the container, this is not what it looked like. It was nicely rolled up and placed in there. But right now, it looks kind of hard and useless. It also breaks quite easily when it's dry. It's not, not the best thing. But do I just drop this into a bucket of water? It takes on the shape of what it is supposed to be. And it is ready for the purpose of what it is supposed to do. I'm not treating you like children this morning while giving you simple rudimentary examples. But I'm hoping that this will stir something in you that if you immerse yourself in the presence of God, you will instantly take on the correct shape and you will be able to do what He has asked you to do more than when you try and do it in your dry own state. One of the car washers comes to your window and starts rubbing at your windscreen with this thing. I promise you, you will jump out and say, yeah, you're scratching my window. The same person wets this and wipes your window and you get a response of, thank you, I can see clearly now. The rain has gone. We have communion this morning. Do not let my humor detract from the seriousness of being in the presence of God. Immerse yourself in His presence. Let Him saturate you. And you know what? Just like this cloth goes in and instantly it is. He is instant with us. You come with a humble, repentant heart and He's like, Woo, I'm there. I'm here. You get rid of the distractions. He's there. And He might even give you a little bit of soap. This morning as we have communion, why don't you take it as a moment to immerse yourself in His presence again, afresh, anew. Maybe that word that Marion brought that says, do not be scared, come on, get on with it. Or maybe the word that Molise brought, you're being refined, but you have been refined, or you might still be refined. Maybe that's what you need to spend time with, with God today. It's the time for getting to God during communion now. I was marrying them to come and do the last song that they didn't get a chance to do. Such a beautiful song. While we have communion this morning, I'm going to ask you to come to the front, take communion. Do it in groups, do it by yourself, but sit and pursue God's presence for a few minutes.